Let's continue before the Lord in prayer. Take any posture you want. You can sit down, stand, walk around. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now and ask that you would move through this room. Meet every person. Meet our hopes, our yearnings, our desires, the things we want most in life. Lord, come and meet with us about those now. Meet with us, Father, about our failings, about the mistakes we've made, about the things we wish we wouldn't have done. Meet with us about those. Meet with us, Lord, about the mission of this life, why we're here, what is our purpose, where's our life going. Meet with us. We praise You, Trinity. We praise You as Father, the One who spoke the world, the universe, all that there is. You spoke it into existence, and You spoke us into existence. We were made by Your voice and for Your voice. So speak, Father, the deepest place in our heart where we desire the world to be whole. Show us again why that's there. We sense it's because You've made us. We praise You, Jesus, and ask You to come. You who are fully God, fully man, the center of history, the reason we're here. You are the perfect sacrifice because one drop of Your blood, because You're God, it's infinite and it can save the entire world and wash away sins. And yet You became human so that You could walk in our shoes. You could live the perfect, obedient life that we could not live. And You give that to us so that before You, because of Jesus, we can stand righteous before God. We praise You, Jesus, the perfect Savior, the strong, anointed King. And we praise You, Holy Spirit. You are here. You live in us. Your Word says that You have poured the love of the Father into our heart, and therefore we can cry out, Abba, Father. We praise You, Holy Spirit, as the One who grows the church who unifies the church, the one who uh, gifts the church for work in this world. We praise You, Holy Spirit. We thank You for giving us the assurance that we have a Father. Meet with us, God, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we begin our series on the Psalms, let's begin at the beginning with the gateway to the Psalms, Psalm 1, as Donna reads. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Happy. Happy is the first word of the Psalms. Happy. An inner state of being infused with joy. At the very first word is the gate. And the gate is called happy. And if you walk in through the gate, you get happy. My mission today is to persuade you to make the Psalms a part of your core daily habits. One a day. You say, Father, and you read the psalm, and you'll learn to sing the blues, which is necessary in this life. I want to persuade you to make the psalms a habit, and I'm going to give you three compelling reasons. You get to choose if they're compelling. But the first is this. Whenever you look at the psalms, and God's people in their history were connected well to God, the psalms were there. When God's people have been connected, the Psalms are there. Secondly, the Psalms are beautiful. The way they are constructed, they give us language to pray from every season of our lives. Good times and hard times. The Psalms give us words and voice. No matter what we're going through, to pray. They're also beautiful because they're poetry. Hebrew poetry, and we'll talk about the beauty of the poems. So they're central to the life of God's people. They are beautiful in the lives of God's people. But the most compelling reason is I believe, and I say this without embarrassment, I'm not ashamed of this. If you pray the Psalms, you will pray yourself happy. You want to hear more? Do you believe happiness is possible? An inner state of of being infused with joy. Do you believe happiness is possible? I think when we're young, we all start out thinking that happiness is the natural position, the default condition of the heart. I think we all start out as Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live. You know, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, people like me. (laughs) And then we live a while, and we begin to go through hard times, through seasons of suffering. We live a while and understand that mm, happiness isn't present every day. In fact, there's large stretches of my life now where I might not even use the word happy to describe my life. We end up on the other side sometimes in seasons of life thinking not only is it not the natural default position, but it is unachievable. Most of us, I think, live somewhere in between bouncing back and forth. I I, I think often we're so busy we don't even perceive our own happiness. I think sometimes uh, as busyness, as distraction is the queen of the world, we just don't think about it. Who has time to think about such things? I'd like to persuade you toward happiness this morning. I, I believe it's possible from the first word in the Psalms. So you ready for the journey? Let's talk about first how central they have been in the history of God's people. Let's start with Israel. Most of the Psalms were written by King David, Solomon, others during the monarchy in the history of Israel. And we see them singing them first corporately. What would happen, as so often happens, even in church world, is that, you know, the spiritual vitality 
of a, of a movement kind of rises and falls at times with leadership. And so when Israel would have a bad king who didn't care about God, you know, paganism would creep in and people were just not connected to God at all. But then a good king would come and there'd be revival. And one of the things the good kings would always do, and it's just interesting to trace this through the history of Israel, is they would often have a big worship service in the temple and they would have the law read. Now, some scholars think it was sections of the law. Others think it was actually the entirety of the law. So imagine this. If you've been in the Old Testament lately, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they would have that read in one worship service with the people standing. (laughs) We get cranky after four songs. Standing. While the entirety of the law was read, they were that hungry. Can you imagine? Have you been that hungry? Then, after the law was read, you have a verse like this. This is one of the occasions under the great leadership of Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, after the law was read, his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And so they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worshipped. So they had this infinitely long sermon and then they praised and worshipped. When Israel is connected to God, the Psalms are there. It's true on a corporate level. It's also true on an individual level. Have you heard lately of the guy, the prophet named Jonah? You might remember him from the Old Testament. Remember God called him to go to Nineveh, modern day Iraq, and preach the gospel. And he even gave Jonah the words of the gospel. It was the most powerful five-word sermon in the history of God's people. Do you know what the sermon was? Forty days turn or burn. Jonah says, no, I'm not going there. And you remember he caught a ship and went a thousand miles in the other direction to the sunny beaches of Spain. Now, Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because he was scared of the Ninevites. Do you know why Jonah tried to go to Spain? Because he was scared that God would hear the cries for mercy of the Ninevites and save them. He didn't want that to happen. And so... He catches a ship to Tarshish. God throws a storm at him. Series of events. He's thrown into the water, sinking, sinking somewhere, probably in the Mediterranean Sea. And God sends an Uber taxi to to pick him up. An an aqua bus. And by the way, uh, I, I know these things. I, I went to the kind of college where you wrote papers on this kind of thing. And I once did a research paper on sharks in the Mediterranean Sea. And they have discovered that there are sharks as long as 30 feet in the Mediterranean Sea. And they have in these sharks over the centuries found whole suits of armor in the bellies of these sharks. And they found whole entire horses in the bellies of these sharks. So it's not really a a big deal that Jonah would be in the shark's belly. Do you know what the big deal is? Is that he stayed alive for three days in the place of death. What is that? That a person could be in the place of death for three days and then walk out the other side. One greater than Jonah is here. But I get ahead of myself. Um, What would you do? What would you do if you were in the shark belly? 
Would you pray? Dang right you would pray. You would pray. The, the surprising thing about Jonah in the shark's belly is not that he prayed. You would too. Do you know what's really interesting about Jonah in the shark's belly praying is what he prayed. Every line in Jonah 2 of Jonah's prayer from the shark is a line from the Psalms. Jonah, in a pressurized situation, is thinking back to his Sabbath Awana school and trying to remember every verse that he'd ever memorized as a kid. And he's praying them up. Jonah prayed the Psalms. When a Hebrew was squeezed, the Psalms came out. It's true of another Jew named Jesus, who from the temptation in the desert at the very beginning of his ministry, when he corrected the devil on the proper application of Psalm 91, to the very end of Jesus' life when he's hanging on the tree among his final words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is Psalm 22.1. Jesus sourced his strength from the sanctuary that he found in the Psalms. He knew them by heart. He sang them. And when he needed prayer, he prayed them. And I think they're very present in the life of the early church. Oh, one quote though. I want to give you this one quote because it has a phrase in it we need. It's from Bonhoeffer, thinking about how Jesus prayed the Psalms. The Psalter impregnated the life of early Christianity. Yet more important than all of this, is the fact that Jesus died on the cross with the words of the Psalter on his lips. Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. Here's the phrase. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. Unsuspected power. We see this in the life now of the early church. Peter and James were, or Peter and John were preaching the gospel. They get arrested, they're released, and then we pick it up in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Here's the psalm. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed. They prayed the psalms to keep them in mind of who the authority in their life is. It's not the Jewish authorities. It's not the Roman governors. Jesus is the King. And praying Psalm 2 kept the early church moving towards God and for God. The early church prayed the Psalms. If we had time, we could go back through history. You would see that when Benedictine guided the church through some of the dark ages, he had monks in monasteries praying the Psalms through the whole way every week. They would pray five to seven Psalms a day as a gathered community. Or uh, we could talk about Martin Luther and John Calvin during the Reformation, which is why you and I are sitting in the seats we're sitting in this morning. But they kept the Psalms as central to the liturgy of the church during the Reformation. It's only been in the last 150 years when we evangelicals 
have begun to lose our grip on the Psalms and they've stopped being a core habit for us, both in our worship uh, or in our daily habits. We need to get them back. And when we do, unsuspected power. So we pray the Psalms because they have been central to the life of God's people. When God's people are connected to God, the Psalms are there. Secondly, the Psalms are beautiful and we should pray them because they work. And here's how they work. In the first way, they uh, help us with language for every season of life. The Psalms fit all of life. So we could go through the room this morning, take a survey, and my guess is everyone in this room would fall out into three categories that would describe their life. Thrive, dive, or survive. Some of you here this morning, and you are thriving. You would say, God is good. Life is good. You would say, he, God is presiding. He's, he's well-placed. There's symmetry in my life, but uh, He's not bothering me or disappointing me. When we're thriving we find life to be in the Proverbs, right? The big idea of the Proverbs is this. If you work hard and make good decisions, life generally goes well for you. Many of you are living that out. By the way, I do remind you that the Proverbs are observations, not promises. But it's generally observed that if you work hard and make good decisions, life goes well for you. I hope your thriving continues. I do. But there are seasons ahead of you when in sometimes in a day you go from thriving to diving. You're cut by the deep discontinuities of life. Disease. Death of a loved one. Divorce. Failed relationship. Loss of job. War, famine, unresolvable global crisis, natural disaster. I mean, we're cut by the unexplainable tragedies of life. Then we find ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes, where the big idea is that you will live long enough to be unhappy and unstable. Thrive, dive, and getting us between them are these psalms that we'll call survive psalms. Psalms of wisdom, psalms of focus, psalms that help us in entering a new normal in life. Survive. I'm convinced that survive is the most bittersweet word in the English language. If it's applied to you, it's a good thing. You're still alive but it also means that you've suffered some kind of life-altering, life-changing experience, cancer survivor, Holocaust survivor, auto car accident survivor. You have suffered. I wish I do that the pastors of Waterstone, Danielle, Nick, whoever's up here, Jesse, I, I wish they could stand here and say that once you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, it is all ahead. Don't worry. Be happy. But it's not. I think if you hit your thumb with a hammer 
after you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, it still hurts just as much. And I'm sorry to report of the hundreds of funerals I've done. Christians die of cancer. And young believers die in car accidents. There are coming days in your life when you will not have the words or the heart to pray. And that is why you need to be praying the Psalms now. They are beautiful because they fit all of life. They're also beautiful because they bring life to prayer. First of all, they're poetry. Do you remember the purpose of poetry? I love in my top five of all time, this will date me, but my, one of my favorite movies is The Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams. Do you remember he's trying to teach his young boys about poetry and he asks them, class, class, what's the purpose of poetry? And they're looking through their textbooks and trying to give all the definitions, rhyme, meter, working with words, blah, blah, blah. He says, boys, boys, bring it in, bring it in. Boys, the purpose of poetry is to woo women. Poetry is the language of the heart, of emotions. Listen to this. Do you know what the Psalms are for in your life? They're for you and God to sit down together and God says to you with the Psalms, share your feelings with me. What hurts? What's wrong? You're happy. Tell me about it. The Psalms exist for you to have an emotional life experience with God. They're poetry. Here's how poetry works. In the Hebrew, there's two distinct features. The first, the scholars call parallelism. We could call it repetition. It's saying the same thing twice or three times, but using different words each time. And sometimes the thought advances with each repetition. So let me illustrate. One of the famous psalms that you probably could quote most of is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What's the big idea of, uh, of Psalm 23, if you had to give it a big idea? Uh, something like, God will take care of you, right? Or we could put it into three words. Here's the big idea of Psalm 23. I got you. But as you read the psalm, how many different ways does God say it? There's these green pastures and these quiet waters and there's this rod and staff and there's this table in the presence of my enemies and there's this anointing my head with oil and there's my cup overflowing and then I get to go home at the end. Nine different ways God wants you to sit down and listen, I got you. 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 Do you see the power in the point of parallelism? Repeat it until you get it. Until you hear it. Let me give you another one. 
In a few weeks, Nick's going to be preaching on this psalm. It's one of the most amazing psalms in the whole book, Psalm 51. David writes it after his monumental sin with Bathsheba of adultery and murder. A year later, David is finally getting to the place where he can talk about it, and he writes this confession, and it's amazing. Here's what's really interesting. In the confession, there's only four Hebrew verbs that describe what David did, the sin. Four. In the song, there are 19 different Hebrew verbs that describe what God does with David's sin. Washes it away, purges it, cleanses with hyssop, launders it. It's gone. Just a quick aside here. You know, right, that the main event in this life is never your sin. Never. The main event in life is what God does with your sin. Always. Nineteen different verbs till we get it. You are forgiven. Nineteen different ways. Get it. Mm -hmm. Parallelism. The power of repetition. Sit down, God says. I got to tell you something and I'm going to keep repeating it until you believe it. And then there's this other part of Hebrew poetry called metaphor. Do you remember metaphor from your high school grammar class? Metaphor is an implied comparison where something that's abstract is compared to something that's concrete so that we can understand the abstract thing a little better. So the Psalms are full of them, right? And what is more abstract than God? You know, we can't see him. He's invisible. He's much bigger than we are. We just have a hard time picturing God. So the Psalms give us these metaphors to help us visualize God. So... The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my strong tower. The Lord is my shield. On and on it goes, using concrete images to help us capture the character quality of God. What's amazing about these metaphors is that they're an invitation to participate, right? So, for instance, in Psalm 23, the Lord prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What's that table look like for you? I know for me, it's got turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy, cranberry sauce, corn, stuffing, pumpkin pie with whipped cream. That's my table. How about yours? We are invited to imagine these metaphors with God. He wants to talk to us and say, what do you, what's that look like to you? Let me give you another one. The Lord is my rock. We sang it this morning. What do you picture when you think of the Lord being your rock? I know what I don't picture. One of the greatest disappointments to me of living in New England for five years, besides Bill Belichick, was (laughs) this massively overhyped tourist site called Plymouth Rock. How many of you have ever seen Plymouth Rock? Yeah, yeah. you, you know what I'm saying, right? You hear about this, all oh, the pilgrims, it's got 1620 engraved on it, and, you know, it's got this big temple thing over it. Ah, Plymouth Rock. I walk up, I look over the rail. It's this big! This big! I'm not exaggerating. This big. God is not my Plymouth Rock. Man, when I think of a rock, I think of Mount Elbert or Mount Massive, even Bierstadt. The Lord who is massive and massively stable, 
He is a Colorado mountain to me. You get to fill the metaphor and participate in this prayer with God. So, I'm hoping that the Psalms become part of your daily routine. One a day, say Father at the beginning and read away. And in that, you will be connected with the saints throughout the ages who've prayed these Psalms, including Jesus. And you will be massively inspired by their beauty. Not only that they give you the words to pray on the hardest day of your life, but in their daily beauty, letting you and God just sit down together and have these times. You can't speed read a poem. But back to where we started. I believe the Psalms can pray you happy. An inner condition of joy infused. So let's go back to Psalm 1, the gateway, where the first word is Asher, or happy. Look at, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. By the way, it's repeated three times. What's that called again? Parallelism. It's right out of the gate. Parallelism. So what's the psalmist doing here as it relates to happiness? He's saying happiness, first word, think about it. Slow down. What am I saying? Does not walk does not stand, does not sit. He's right out of the gate slowing us down to ask this question. What does your happiness lean on? Right? What are you sitting in, putting your weight in to make you happy? Let's start there. Evaluate your happiness, its source. What are you living for? Let me me ask it this way. The psalm starts with this. What is your fundamental allegiance? Let's start there. That's what the first verse is asking. It's asking, are you putting your hope for happiness in things, you know, that the culture says can give you happiness? Money, sex, power. Are those the things that you are seeking? Is that the path you're on that can give you happiness? Sometimes it's good things. Sometimes the things we think will make us happy are marriage, children, even church. But when we put those things in the place of God and ask them to do for us what only God can do, make good things and do ultimate things, even though they're good, they cannot make us ultimately happy. You see, happiness is never in and of itself a path. You don't read in the Psalms, happy is the one who's pursuing happiness. Jesus put it this way in the positive. He said, seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and His, and all these things will be added unto you. Listen, brothers and sisters, friends, Happiness is never a path. Happiness is a byproduct of the path that you're on. And if you're seeking first the kingdom and His righteousness, Jesus says, you get all those other things that sometimes you're so desperate for. You get them as throw-ins. So seek the right path. What's the right path? Verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law day and night. The right path is the law of the Lord. And delight 
is connected to that process of meditating. You're meditating on it all the time. Just, I just have to bring out a little bit. When you leave today, you're going to get a, a little card and it has a spiritual discipline. And each week we do a psalm, we're going to be highlighting a spiritual discipline that's in the psalm. And so this week's on meditation. You'll get the card, you read it. I love that word. That word meditate is, is used in the Old Testament to describe a lion chewing his prey and making guttural noise as he chews. Mm, mm, mm. It's used of a pigeon cooing. It's used uh, of a baby gibberish. It, it's a, a beautiful word. <laughs> when I think of it, though, I have to tell you this quick story. My son Luke, growing up, his best friend was a kid named Andrew Wolf. Some of you long timers remember the Wolf family. Andrew Wolf, believe it or not, is now in the Marines. He was back visiting with us when he was home on a, on a, on a, uh, a leave. And uh, we were reminiscing about Andrew used to come over and eat at our house all the time. And what was so funny is that he'd be eating, you know, Luke and Andrew would be eating their mac and cheese. And Andrew would be meditating on his food, literally. He'd be, mmm, 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 I guess you had to be there. But Jan was so... We, were, we would get laughing so hard that Jan and I would have to take turns leaving the room. <laughs> we were bent over and laughed. I've never seen a boy enjoy his food so much verbally. Meditate on his law day and night. So Larry, what are you saying? That we should read the book of Leviticus and make guttural sounds as we read? No. The law of the Lord speaks of the whole book. It speaks of God's the Bible they had at, the, at their time. We have a, a larger Bible now. But it's referring to the book. That a believer on the right path is one who takes great delight in the book. Well, how? How do we take delight in the book? See, Go with me here for just a minute. Isn't it something when you're reading a book and you know the author? Doesn't that make a difference? Then the book goes from a book to a voice. When we know the author, our Father, then the book is not just a book, it's a voice. That's what the Bible is for us. It's a voice saying, when I say as your Father do, I mean do help yourself. And when I say as your Father don't, I mean don't hurt yourself. Suddenly, it's not just a bunch of rules and regulations. It's about a father's voice guiding our life. A book becomes a voice when you know the author. That's how we read the Bible. That's what I think, by the way, our culture is just desperate for. Our culture is starved for experience and searching for meaning. Why? Some of it has to do with, you know, from the earliest stages of schooling now, we're telling our children, look, you're just a nothing. You're a random complex of chemical reactions. You came from nowhere and you're going for nowhere. nowhere. But our culture doesn't seem to be able to squash it down totally with this, this longing for experience. I was listening to a TED Talk recently by uh, actually a, an atheist that I really respect, one of the most articulate atheists I've ever heard speak. His name is Alain de Botain. And in this talk, it's called Atheism 2.0. He's rolling along, throwing out the reasons why he doesn't believe in God. And then right about in the middle of the talk, there's this amazing line he throws out. He, he says, of course now, we all know that there's no God. But I sure do miss singing Christmas carols. Whoa. Where did that come from? 
What's that longing? What voice do even atheists long to hear? Father's voice. A quick aside. Some of you are in the room this morning and you're seeking out this thing we call church, sticking your toe back in. and Maybe you've had kind of a hunger and you you know you might need to get back in church. Others of us are in the room and you're just here because someone invited you, maybe your family in town, whatever it is, and you're just wondering about this Christianity thing. I've got a proposition for you. What if you tried to pray these psalms one a day, say Father at the beginning like Jesus would want you to do, and you gave Him a shot? Now, there's a condition. The condition cannot be, okay, God, I'll try this if you give me the things I want. You cannot seek favor before you seek Father. Your purpose in this, (laughs) it can't be Woody Allen. Oh, God, if only you would give me some clear sign, like a large deposit in a Swiss bank account in my name. No, it can't be that. Jeremiah, in chapter 29, he says, You will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So if you want to try this out, it needs to be a serious try. And you need to be looking not for favor, but for Father. And see if you don't hear the voice. So, the pursuit of happiness begins by examining what you're leaning on because happiness is always a byproduct of the path that you're on. So we're saying that's the fundamental allegiance. But every fundamental allegiance is to and flows from a fundamental relationship. That's the next two verses. We go on in the psalm, that person is like a tree. So we had our first parallelism in verse 1. Here's our first metaphor. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. So a person who examines their fundamental allegiance discovers that it really links to a fundamental relationship. They're like a tree. That's a very interesting metaphor. It's actually, in the Hebrew, it reads transplanted by streams of water. So this tree has been you know, struggling not making it in in life, and then someone picks it up and transplants it near a flowing river or an irrigation canal, and thus its roots go down deep, and it's productive and resilient because someone has transplanted it. Or I think if we switch the metaphor, we could say, this tree has been born again. Jesus came up with that metaphor to describe how we're placed in a family, his family born again. What's the point? The main point is this. Listen, this is really important. So often, we get caught up in evaluating our happiness by evaluating our circumstances. And I'm not faulting anyone for that. I do it myself. I mean, we all... And I, <laughs> nor are we wishing bad circumstances on anyone. No, of course we do this. We're human. But... If your happiness is always settled by how good your circumstances are, you are going to struggle in life. Your happiness factor needs to be rooted deeper than that. Can I say it this way? Happiness struggles if it's rooted in circumstances. Happiness flourishes if it's rooted in relationship. 
namely relationship with the one who made us and saves us. So the psalmist is saying, when you sit down to pray, first thing, I want you to get away and look at a tree, specifically a tree that Jesus hung on. Jesus prayed the Psalms for you on the cross. He prayed them for you so that you could be forgiven of sins and promised a home such that even if you have the worst day of your life here and you die the worst thing, it's an upgrade. Do you know the point? The point is this. When you are a follower of Jesus, every day is Easter. The culture has to deny a lot of the hardship of life and especially death. Much of the counsel of the culture is, well, you know, don't, don't bring me down. Why are you even thinking about that? Jen and I were driving through uh, D, near DU the other day in my, in my Toyota Corolla, and I hit the brakes to a stop sign, and there was this crunching sound in the wheels. And Jen says, what's that? And I said, I don't know. And in my head I'm thinking, I'll just keep driving. It'll go away. That's how I roll. That's how the culture rolls. What's that noise coming out of your brakes? That, that thing in your future that you know is going to come, that day that's going to come, what's that noise? Hmm, I don't know. If I don't think about it, it's not there. Christians are different. And here's the opportunity for you to see Asher at the gate. Christians are rooted in Easter Every day is Easter because Jesus was on that cross. He made us the Father's delight. So here's what Easter means. Easter means mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy means life conquers death. Easter means the forgiveness of sins. Easter means that nothing that happens to you here is the last word. Easter means eternal life with God and the saints forever. And Easter means at the end of it all, you dance the hokey pokey on your grave. That's what it's all about. Every day is Easter for the follower of Jesus. And that, my friends, is unsuspected power and an unstoppable movement. We get a glimpse of it every time we pray the Psalms. So, we're going to sing a response to this. We're going to sing our joy to the Lord. We're going to remember our roots go down into the cross. Let me, as the band's coming, I want to just do one shameless promotion. It's of a new book that's out, and I, I want you to get it, actually. This is a book, uh, The Songs of Jesus, written by Tim and Kathy Keller. What they do is they pray you through the Psalms in one year. Every page has a portion of a psalm a brief explanation, some historical background, and then a short prayer to launch you in praying this psalm. Jan and I have been doing it, and we've struggled over the years to do spiritual things together. We would both say, as different as we are, this book has been pretty cool for our prayer life as a couple. I would encourage you, if you're looking for something with your family, with a friend, for yourself, this is a great tool to pray the psalms. Would you stand? Let's sing our response. Let's be happy as we sing. <laughs>